Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Um, welcome, everybody. My name is Erica Quach, and I am a program officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Um, currently joining you all today from Queens, New York. Um, I am delighted to welcome you all to our webinar this afternoon and to welcome our speaker and commentator who will share their thoughts on rural China, the urban-rural divide, and its threat to China's rise. A massive thank you to my colleagues who have worked and are working to make this program possible. Um, before I introduce Professor Roselle and Professor Gao, I want to show you all the book that the conversation will focus on today. Here it is, Invisible China by Scott Roselle and Natalie Hell. Um, and I highly, highly recommend that you read this book as it sheds a lot of important and much needed light on a part of China that is often misunderstood or left out of important conversations. And that is rural China. Um, I will now briefly introduce our speaker and commentator for today's webinar. You can find their, their full bios on our webpage for this event. Scott Roselle is the Helen F. Farnsworth Senior Fellow and the Co-Director of the Rural Education Action Program in the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Ching Gao is a professor at the Columbia University School of Social Work and the founding director of the Columbia China Center for Social Policy. She is also a member of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. I will turn the floor over to Professor Roselle in a bit to present his findings and to introduce his book. His presentation will be followed by commentary from and conversation with Professor Gao before we turn it over to questions from the audience. Um, please submit any questions you may have using the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. And with that, I will disappear and turn it over to Scott. Uh, thank you, Erica, and uh, thank you, uh, uh, Professor Gall. Let me share the screen here. Okay. Okay. Uh, good. Um, uh, well, um, it's a very, it's a pleasure to, and a, and a real honor to be able to, to come to the committee and, and give uh, a talk and introduce some of the ideas. Um, <laughs> many, many people in the China field, <laughs> academics write a lot of books, and uh, uh, this is really my first book. <laughs> uh, and so it was a lot of a lot of work and a long, long time coming. Um, and um, so, uh, and I want to th really thank Natalie. Um, uh, Johnson Hell was worked for Reap for many many years, and if if you read the book, <laughs> you're going to see it's very well written. That's because Natalie did most of the actual uh, a lot of the writing uh, in there, and um, so um, let me. Oops, uh, here we go. Um, so uh, here we go. Um, this is not a China bashing book, <laughs> and I just want to make sure, right? Um, I've worked in China for for forty years in rural China, uh, and you know I I know a lot of people there, and you know that that, that 
the people who are from rural China are hardworking. They're mostly extremely, you know, open. They're they're nice people. They 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 really, uh, you know, um, they, they want to make a better life for themselves and for the families and for the communities, right? Uh, uh, I, so I don't want to see what I'm going to talk about happen for humanistic reasons, but there's also economic. Uh, you know, if, if China stalls, if China stagnates, <laughs> right, um, you know, the economy of the world is going to be hurt and the U.S. and China, right, it's going to be hurt. And, and, you know, I'm a development economist. Um, uh, I don't talk much about <laughs> the, the other things outside of economic impacts of a stagnation or a, a you know a falling of china but there could be you know other problems if the legitimacy of growth um uh you know becomes uh, under attack or disappears um it's not to say you know what's going to happen so i know in today's world it's not the most pc thing to say but i want china to succeed of course i want that in a fair cooperative all-encompassing way and they have a long ways to go to, to meet that. But um, uh, that's the reason, you know, I wrote this book, okay? Now, what's Invisible China? This is a national committee <laughs> here, so I don't need to do a whole lot of this. But in my book, the Invisible China is rural China. It's China now is 1.4 billion people. 60% uh, of them have a rural um, hukou, they have a, a rural residency uh, that makes 840 million of them. That's one. It's actually one ninth of the world population. You know, our two U.S. populations. That that that's one out of every nine people are in this invisible China. And here they are, right? They're the ones that are crowded into the factories. Uh, they're the self-employed informal workers on the street. They bring you your Starbucks coffee um, to your office, um, uh, um, uh, you know, today and um, do, do many, many other um, informal jobs. They run the farms. And of course, they're the elderly left in the villages. They're the children left in the villages. And they're the migrant families who are down the back alleys that, that uh, uh, live and work and, and, and make China go. So I first started working in China, <laughs> right? Uh, 40 years ago, actually thir uh, 39 years ago was my first trip. At that time, more than 85% of Chinese lived in rural communities. A higher percentage had families grandparents, parents, brothers, and sisters that were either farming or working in rural factories. People went back and forth, professionals, government officials, college students. They were there. If you tried to take a trip anywhere in China, you had to get on a bus, right? And traverse the countryside on this horribly developed road system. And so you, you just, you know, it was slow and you stopped in village guest houses at night and ate at farm uh, farmhouse restaurants right you that's village it that rural china wasn't invisible 30 to 40 years ago but boy has that changed today right i mean less than five percent of students in elite universities in china have any rural roots at all or have you know have have either a mother or father uh who has um uh, a rural hukou uh, if you don't fly across the country today you get on a high-speed rail it's 350 kilometers an hour i love to take photos right uh guess what it's impossible to take a picture of a village <laughs> right going in 350 miles an hour it goes it's invisible and of course the media Media, both 
China's media, international media focuses on, right? I mean, we're focused on Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, right? There's no glimpse of this rural China, almost never, right? It's it's that they're there, you know, again, one out of nine people in the whole world is part of this, this invisible China. Um, so, um, Eric had uh, introduced me real quick. Um, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but um, what basis was this book produced? Well, since 1988, um, uh, I, I was in China teaching before that, but in 1988, um, I, I started doing in the field surveys like development economists do, uh, collecting data. Till today, I've done this in 28 provinces and municipalities. I've visited more than 650 counties. <laughs> and if you add all this up, we've been to tens of thousands of villages, tens of thousands of schools, thousands of businesses, rural factories, you know, that you, you, you have to go to rural China to collect the data in rural China. Um, and and that's the basis of of this book of what I I see uh, there. So so enough of the background. Okay? So uh, this is the main message, especially for for a group as influential um, you know as the committee. Um, you know what do I see is how does you know invisible China threaten China's rise? Um, here's the only economic graph I'm going to show you. <laughs> so bear with me. Uh, the horizontal axis here is income 70 years ago. The vertical axis here is income today, more or less, okay? And so look at look at these countries down here. This is like Congo and Myanmar, right? Uh, that they were poor before, they're poor now. Uh, here's the OECD countries, right? Um, so this is, you know, Canada, Norway, Sweden, Australia, <laughs> okay? Uh, I'm interested in two countries to really try to understand um, uh, this invisible China's problem. And the first one are the graduates. And look at, look at this. These are the countries that 60 years ago were middle income and today they're high income okay so they graduated to high income there's not very many of them right look at this you know they're the you know singapore ireland south korea taiwan province taiwan territory okay um etc 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 israel and these are the countries um that that you know have made it there's just just such a handful of them now the other group of countries I want to contrast them to is the trapped, okay? And these are countries that for 70 years <laughs> have been in middle income. And, you know, they aren't in e harmony, equilibrium, right? They grow, 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 collapse, grow, 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 collapse. And, and when they collapse, lots of people in those countries get hurt. Um, rarely are these countries big enough that when they collapse that we feel it in the US or in Western Europe. Uh, but, um, uh, right, you can see where I'm going, you know, with that, okay? Now, what's the difference between these guys <laughs> and these guys? Well, one of the fundamental differences between the graduate and trapped, at the time of middle income, the level of human capital and uh, I think education of the whole labor force has to be high. Okay, um, so look at, here's OECD. So here are the rich countries of the world. In the rich countries of the world, seven to eight out of 10 people in the labor force, so 18 to 64, have been to high school or above. Okay, and, and um, look at middle income grads. 
almost the same. They're they're just two percent. They're 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 the same, right? Seven to eight out of ten. In this is when they're middle income, right? When when wages are still a dollar or two dollars an hour, in those 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 graduate countries, they'd already sent high shares of their labor force to to high school or above. Okay. Um, now look at the trapped. I'm going to talk about why in just, just a second. In the trapped, it's the Turkey, Brazil, Argentina, Mexico, right? There are a whole bunch of them, right? On average, look at an average middle-income country, only three or four out of 10 in the labor force, which means that what? Six or seven out of 10 are high school dropouts, right? That they, that they, that, you know, um, they just are, are, are much, much less educated um, uh, than, than in these graduates. So look at the hat. It's, it's actually interesting. And, and this is, this is all OECD data. It's actually only a half of that. Okay. So they have twice the level of education. So why is this important? Okay. As a country moves from middle income, to, they graduate to higher income, wages rise, the nature of work changes, low skill, low wage, to high wage, high skill, right? Uh, we're going to show you that this is well underway in China. And if a large share of the labor force, can't participate, there's polarization, right? Um, for example, there's going to be high unemployment, uh, wages are going to fall, high crime, social unrest, the rise of informality. We're going to look at this. This is uh, in the informal sector becomes um, uh, a, a dumping ground for this labor that can't be used in the high wage, high skill sector. And uh, there's there, there's actually kickbacks uh, and, and uh, pressure down on the formal economy. Of course, when there's high crime, social unrest, unemployment, there's supply side problems, a poor investment, a climate stagnation, vicious circle down. Okay. So what happens when a large share of the labor force sinks into the informal economy? And so we're talking lots and lots of countries, right? The Argentinas, you know, Brazil today is 40%, uh, Colombia, 60%, uh, Ecuador, uh, Indonesia is, you know, up to 70%, okay? That these are, you know, Mexico has about 50 to 60% of, of its labor force in the, the informal economy, right? No benefits, no fixed hours, no regulations. Um, etc. You know, it's and this is this is what it is, right? <laughs> well, actually, our group REAP, who are, we work on China, we went to Mexico City for an international conference, and you know, these are pictures right outside our hotel in downtown Mexico City, right? And um, we actually took a trip up to here, up to the slums outside of Mexico City, right? Um, and uh, so, and so, what's the problem? Well, there's a, a former professor at Harvard. He's now at the Inter-America Development Bank. He's got a great, he calls it the American paradox. This is, this is really important. He explains, look at Mexico. Wait a minute, is this China or Mexico? Listen to what I say about Mexico. Solid macro performance, Mexico, China. Export success, accumulation of physical capital, da, 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 da. Mexico in the last 30 years, very little growth. Why? Because productivity has stagnated. And that's the, 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 the informal sector is too large. It, it, it competes, it pulls down, it diverts resources uh, from that. And so that's um, Professor Levy's um, uh, sort of explanation of why Mexico for 30 years now, growth has been zero.
okay? And, you know, look at Mexico. 34% of its labor force uh, is now, it was even, you know, uh, it just it was about that little bit lower in the 1990s, right? That there's just no way. What do you do with the 60% of the people who, who, you know, who don't know how to learn how to learn? So I'm, I'm going to move on to China right now. And people are people are trying to think. Oh, is Scott going to say that 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 uh, Mex is that China is going to sort of follow this way? And 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 we know we know what everybody's saying today. Okay, China has made it. China is the already the superstar. They are they are the new superpower of the world. Haven't they made it yet? Remember when I was in grad school in 1980s, what they said about Mexico? Mexico was allowed into OECD the high-income countries of the world, because it had made it, <laughs> okay? Mexico was called the next Taiwan. Probably very few people remember that. I mean, I was studying Mexico because I'd been to Taiwan for, for so many years, and I wanted to, to really understand, you know, that. And so, uh, China. So, let's move to China now. Okay, so where is China in this human capital world of nations? Okay. Uh, does China have the human capital as jobs move the high wage, high skill to do that? Okay, so here, here's China, clearly in middle income. They've made a lot of progress over the last 60 years. We all know that, right? And uh, of course, what China wants to do is make more progress and move up to here, right? We all know, okay? I mean, I want them to. Um, and uh, What's the problem? Well, I'm going to summarize. You know, all kids don't need to go to college, but children should be going to high school. Because in, remember, in these high wage, high skill jobs, you know, you need to learn how to learn. You need you need math and science and language and computers to do that. You know, if 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 you're a high school dropout, if 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 you've never been to high school, do you have the skills to do that? Um, and because it's at this critical stage that you learn that. So where is China in this human income world? Now, when I give this <coughs> in China, I don't care if it's Tsinghua or the American Chamber of Commerce or a big NGO group, I hear gas. China is the lowest human capital in the whole middle income world, the upper middle income world. Okay, Number one, low. It's low and and everybody goes well where's your data from now remember i told you all the data i collect this isn't the data i collected this is the data that there was a little data collection um you know event called the census you know 1.3 billion people told us what their education level was and if you draw between 18 and 65 right here's the labor force and look at that in 2015 micro census 30, only 30% 30 had ever been one day to high school. Okay, so this is not, if you're a high school dropout, you're still up here. Most kids get into high school and, and finish high school in China. So, um, and, and of course, how does that compare to the rest of the world? China's human capital from this metric, this is an OECD metric, by the way, is lower than South Africa. It's lower than Turkey. It's lower than Mexico. Okay, it's the lowest in the world in these upper middle income countries. I mean, only three out of 10, there's seven out of 10 people in this big, you know, which is 800 million. Of, there's about 400 million people in the labor force that have never been to high school. What do we do with these guys as China tries to become a high technology, high wage, high skill economy, right? 
Um, 70% of them are high school dropouts. And you know what? I mean, a high school dropout in a poor country moving the middle income isn't a problem. There's lots of factory jobs. There's lots of construction jobs. But think in the United States when we're a high school dropout that the probability of being in jail, on drugs, uh, in uh, unemployed, on welfare, on disability is five times higher the probability of being having a middle income job in a in a stable family. Okay, I mean, five. It is not good in a high income country to be a high school dropout. Okay. So, is there any evidence that this is affecting China's economy yet? Okay, China's made it, right? Well, let's look at two key indicators and uh, employment and wages and using data and statistics from the government of China. Okay, so this isn't ours again. Okay, and look at this data. Okay, um, here is um, 2004, and in 2004, about about two-thirds of people in China were in the formal sector. So they were getting benefits, they were under regulation, they were in, in the former employment. And this included in factories and uh, state-owned construction sites and everything like that. Um, but look at today. Over the last 15 years, it's below 45%. In other words, nearly 60% I mean, higher than Mexico, you know, higher than, than Ecuador, right? Uh, higher than Colombia, the share of workers in the informal economy. Yeah, uh, no set hours, no regulation, no benefits. That, that's, you know, that's China's economy today, according to government statistics, okay? Um, and look at this. Look at this. Man why? Well, it's because manufacturing is falling. Construction is falling. Nobody's going into farming. Farming labor is farm. And so, what is there left? Well, this is the good news: is there are skill-intensive jobs rising. Sure, China is moving, has a big middle income, right? There's professionals and doctors and lawyers and professors. Okay, and so that's that's good managers. But look what's rising even faster: the informal labor-intensive service sector. Okay. That's what's driving this fall of formal employment and rise. Look at that rise. And, and so anybody who enters the job market today, anybody who loses their job in manufacturing, anybody who loses their job in construction gets dumped into this labor intensive service sector. And guess what happens to those wages? You bet. The formal sector wages are still rising. You know, even though China produces 6 million uh, college grads a year, that, that wages for this professional sector is going up. But this informal labor intensive sector, they're fall, the growth rate's falling. Okay. And so, wow. Yeah. We get a rise. It's just like um, uh, all these, you know, other things in uh, these other countries that we've seen. Okay. So what's driving these trends? I'm getting towards the end now. What's driving these trends? Should we expect more in the future? Well, you know, what's driving it? Robots, 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 automation, right? <laughs> Those guys that do this are now replaced by this, right? And, um, 
uh, and globalization, right? <laughs> Levi's made in Ethiopia, right? Chinese firms moved to Bangladesh. Um, Samsung assembles everything in Vietnam, right? I mean, uh, these are, you know, that's why these manufacturing jobs are going away, right? They've built all the infrastructure. That's why construction jobs are going away. And then, of course, there's global recession. Um, this COVID-19 <laughs> is triggering triggering even more, okay? Um, should we expect more in the future, <laughs> right? Uh, made in 2025, I'm sure most people here know about this. Look at this, China has the most robots in the world. My my colleague, Li Hongbin, has a fantastic paper about robots in China um, and, uh, um, you know, and, and basically, uh, there's going to be more robots in China soon than all the rest of the world combined is, is, is according to the government. And will global supply chains continue to shift? <laughs> even without U.S.-China trade, trade frictions, even without uh, world trade frictions, yes. I mean, um, we saw it happening already before the recent, and it's going to continue happening now. Maybe, probably, right? And so is this informal sector going to continue, you know, to rise? Um, and what does it mean? You know, what happens if that wage falls? <laughs> um, so does anybody in China know about this? I'm, I'm going to skip over this. Um, I asked this, is this a secret? The fact is no. Okay, it's it's not a, a, a secret. I think the government knows about it. I don't think they know the whole source of the problem, but they know they're undereducated. I would say, look, we're looking at 15 to 17 year olds here, okay? In 2005, only half of 15 to 17 year olds went to high school. By 2014, it's 90%. China added 10 million new students. They know they gotta get their students educated, okay? Um, and they know that it's a rural student problem. Um, more, a higher share of urban kids go to high school than Germany, <laughs> okay? Uh, so it's a, a rural problem. Um, and, you know, originally by 2020, they wanted to universalize. It's probably gonna be pushed off a little, but where's the problem? And it's central China, it's Western China. Less than 50% today of those kids go to high school look at south korea and it was also true in taiwan is when they were at one dollar an hour everyone was going to high school look at mexico in 1980 right mexico hasn't grown since the 1980s china mexico china mexico is that i mean they you know do you think china's made it <laughs> okay um so the the last thing i want to talk about is the the challenge of the government is twofold they got to get everybody into high school. They got to do adult training, <laughs> okay? Because most kids have already passed high school. And when they're in high school or when they're adult training, they have to learn how they have to learn, okay? Quite simply, there's a large share of rural people that don't have the skills to learn how to skill, learn how to learn. Um, we don't have time to go into it, but it it's related to poor early childhood development, poor rural schools. Um, it's what we, children, youth, young adults are not going to high school. They don't have those skills. They're gonna be in this informal labor force or if it's too low, what, 
you know, organized crimes into into other parts of of the economy. Um, my book talks about all the problems there. <laughs> and actually, somebody I, I had a little more time in another um, seminar recently where I went over each of these, and somebody raised their hand and says, "This is just like the U.S. <laughs> right? We have a decentralized fiscal system. Right? We have unsatisfied teachers. Uh, blah blah blah. And we have bad early childhood education development." Um, but these, these, I think, is what the government doesn't understand. And this is what they have to do to make sure this next generation uh, uh, actually rises up and um, is ready for this high-income economy. I'm all done, <laughs> Erica and Tina. Thank you for, for listening. Uh, and I very much look forward, you know, the committee, I respect them so much. I'm looking forward to some back and forth and some um, comments. Thank you. Thank you so much, Scott. Um, over to you. Thank you so much, Erica. And thank you uh, to the National Committee, which uh, uh, often feels like the third home for me in New York. I have my home and Columbia. So National Committee, I go often and uh, I'm proud to be a public intellectual fellow um, at the committee. Uh, so um, I'm very glad to join in this discussion today. Congratulations, Scott, and uh, your co-author for this amazing book. Listening to your talk today, it's so sobering for me. Um, this topic, as you know, is near and dear to my heart. I was born in rural China, a small village, and lived the first six years of my life in that village. When I was six years old, I went to the rural village school. Um, I spent some time there. Uh, we had two classrooms in that school. The first classroom held first graders, third graders, and fifth graders. I was one of that classroom. The other classroom had second and fourth graders. We had one teacher who switched between the two classrooms and the five grades. In my classroom, when a teacher was uh, unavailable, the third graders tutored us, and the fifth graders tutored the third graders. And the village had no preschool or kindergarten. Um, to this day, when I reflect upon this experience, it's hard to imagine me being here I am, where I am today, um, to think back about that route. Uh, in that same year, when I was six, my family somehow moved from the village to a city and also in that process changed our hukou. I think that changed my life without me doing anything or knowing. I also think about my cousins who probably are equally smart and hardworking who stayed back in the village. Their lives are totally different. Their children uh, are today's migrant workers and they are the people you're talking about who don't have the human capital to survive and thrive in this society in the future. So I fully get your point and I'm glad you're raising this alarming issue. I hope your message gets through and action can be taken quickly and effectively. But here's my first question to you, Scott, is that if my hometown village uh, rebuilt the school, because today there's no school in the village anymore. They moved the school to the nearby township None of the villages have any schools, and there are no young people anymore because the young people had to move their families to the townships 
or the county cities to have their kids go to school. So my question is, if the government listens to you and builds the schools in the villages, do you think those families would return home and send their kids to those schools? That's my first question. The second question, um, it's very related to my research. I study poverty, inequality, and social policy, how social policies work to address these issues and to narrow the inequality gaps. I would argue China has another invisible side, which is the super rich. We now have Gini coefficient estimates ranging between 0.4 and 0.6, depending on the data set we use. We know a lot about urban China, the middle class. Uh, we know some about the rural China, the ones in poverty or near poverty. We don't know a whole lot about the super rich, the privileged. So in your book and in the talk, you talk about other countries who've made the jump, right? Made it. And they are the ones who invested in their education, but also they had elites, many of whom were educated in their own countries and overseas, such as the young people we see, you see at Stanford, I see at Columbia, who are super smart, super hardworking, um, who travel widely and have so many different skills. Um, my question is, what can the elite, the privileged, the highly educated, those with resources do for China to address this problem? What are some concrete actions they can take through uh, making things happen or advocacy? I'm glad some of our students already do this. They return to China and try to make a difference. Do you have advice for the people who have this uh, aspiration to make this happen? My third question to you, as you talked about the informal economy where these laborers dominate and don't get security and high enough wages. So I think the future of the economy, both in China and worldwide, would be two things. One is automation, as you talked about, technology. That's at the higher end. But at the lower end, we will have a care economy. We need people who can provide care, uh, who ideally would have more education, but some of them don't need a lot of education. So we need to have a care economy that's informal, but we should convert it to be formal. We should provide benefits to them. We should have their hours regulated so that they can earn a decent living and also provide for their next generation. So I would like to hear more about your thoughts on that. Uh, I think that's a common challenge the world shares. My last point today is the day before election day. I don't think the election is uh, far from our minds. Um, you have worked in the China field for so many years. So I want to ask you uh, whether you think the Chinese political system has an advantage in addressing this human capital shortage or deficit. You noted in your book, and I've observed this year as China works to eradicate rural extreme poverty. If the Chinese government wants to achieve something, they can be very swift, they can be effective, they pour lots of resources into it, um, and they make progress. So I know you made the same observation. If the Chinese government has the political will, do you think they will succeed? 
in addressing the problem you raise in this amazing book. Thank you very much. I look forward to our conversation. Yes, uh, <laughs> when the when the committee, uh, I, Chin and I know each other quite well, and <laughs> uh, we've had many conversations like this. And I knew these hard questions were coming because actually, there's not very many other people who uh, you know have the depth of understanding of these issues as she does. So thank you. Um, I'm going to hit them all light so we can and we can go deeper into some of the questions. Um, um, Yes, so uh, first question is about um, where should kids be educated? Um, I mean, I am uh, by far and away when we, the, the number one problem of rural education <laughs> in China is, can be defined in one word, hukou, right? Is that, uh, you know, I always say the world has 200 other countries, 198 of them, right? Their solution to rural education is to move kids to the city where you can have good teachers, you have lower costs, and uh, there's uh, that parents and kids can live together, <laughs> right? And um, I don't want this to degenerate into a hukou debate, right? I think that China's a long ways away from getting rid of the hukou. So, uh, uh, but but I think that's at at the at the root of the problem. Um, and so, what do you do besides that? Um, you know, I, I think this I this really recent trend of um, well, the the trend over the past twenty years has been to build these township schools, and the township schools are beautiful, right? They got great hardware. Be I mean, they're nicer than Palo Alto elementary schools, <laughs> okay, but they have no software. And a lot of it has to do with China is a decentralized education system. They're just like the United States. China has 40,000 school districts that are all separately funded. We have 40,000 school districts that are all separately funded. And if you're in Palo Alto, right, or, um, you, you know, you're in um, Santa Monica, California, you have fantastic schools. But if you're, you know, in uh, parts of uh, uh, southern uh, Arizona, or if you're out in the Central Valley, you don't. So I think number none, we go on and on, but China has to centralize funding of schools and and and, re, and do, <laughs> greatly increase uh, the the investment into them all the way from zero to three all the way to high school. So um, that's um, number one. Number two was uh, that this was about the super elites. Um, yes. Yeah, this is about super elites. Um. Uh, um we aren't going to solve the problem by NGOs. So uh, take super elites having a foundation and people going out and investing in their little projects. We need that. We need to learn how to do things. And so I, I'm not saying don't do that. But but by these are problems the government has to solve. And so I think it's advocacy. Um, you know, I, I hundred percent. If everybody was a big advocate as you, <laughs> Professor Gao, um, you know that that's the kind of thing we need. And back inside China, um, pe people have asked me, you know, why don't you know? It's invisible, but it's also silent, right? That's because rural China has no voice. 
right? They have no voice. There's no elections. There's, there's everybody is spread out all over the place. There's no, um, you can't have protests, right? They get, they get squashed. And so, you know, we need to have people that advocate for them. And, uh, and I think that it's, it's uh, academics have to increase the transparency of the problem. And then I think the business side, and, and there are groups that really do understand the problem, but we have to do more, right? Um, it's, it's not handing out bags of cash like the poverty program now, it's much more systematic. Um, so that's uh, number three was, what was number three question? The informal economy, especially the care economy. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah. Okay. So um, I really like the idea. I mean, you know, I mean, I've been, I've been, I mean, you know, a lot of my seminars over the past 10 years have been dealing with the same issues. It, there hasn't been a lot of discussion about trying to, about giving informal economy, making them formal, right? So putting in, I think that has to happen. I mean, that's really good. Now, does that solve the problem? No. A, an economy doesn't need 500 million caregivers and uh, uh, 500 million Uber drivers and 500 million um, uh, 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 delivery boys who take Starbucks to you, okay? We need 200 million of them. You, you need 20 or 30% of your economy in high income economies can still be, you know, landscapers and nannies and, and uh, in restaurant workers and everything like that. But we don't need, that's the problem is there's too many of them. And when all these people get dumped in there, even if they're, even if they're um, uh, regulated, the wage is going to go down. Right. Well, you know, this is very much like the United States where we've had this polarization. I think it's just starting, you know, there. And so, um, you know, I think that um, uh, this is I, I like the idea of uh, that's first step. But I think we need more. We need to think of how, you know, how how we restructure this this enti entire economy. Can we do adult teaching? Training someone who only has a junior high education is extremely hard when they're 30 year old and have a family. So um, I think those are the challenges. That's why I think the future, you know, of China is. Was there a fourth one too? Was it the political system effectiveness? Would China be able to? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So sorry. Yes. Your Thank you. I asked um, too many questions. No, 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 no. And and I'll and I'll be real real quick with this one. Um, uh, you know, if China understands this problem, and I think these are that that I think they're they're very very important questions, and I would think so. This is what I always say: China has lots and lots of problems, right? I mean, I always call this I always call this the biggest problem China has. Dot 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 that no one's heard about. I mean, China has a lot of other problems too. Uh, United States has a lot of other problems. Every country has a lot of problems. But this is this is a, a big problem that that they 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 don't know. Um, I think uh, that you know it it has to be addressed by this government. The government has to take over. So China does have a benefit from having a strong focused government. Um, the problem is, is getting them 
it's getting the advocates to tell the government to do this, right? Why should we do this, right? Uh, we we have problems with trade. We have problems with uh, um, flood control. We have we have problems, you know, ev everywhere else in our uh, in our economy. Um, so what I often try to think about is saying, okay, what's the probability that China is going to look more like Japan? in 2030, 2035, or the Philippines, right? Is China gonna look like Japan or is China gonna look like the Philippines, right? And, you know, my book says there's a probability that it'll look like the Philippines. I, I, I don't wanna give you, you know, I don't wanna give you a percentage, you know? I don't even care what that percentage is. 5% probability, 20% probability, I actually think is high, <laughs> but, you know, but, but think about investing in this world economy big time with China's <laughs> very efficient government that can focus, uh, why should they do it? It's like insurance policy, okay? It, maybe it won't happen, but it's possible. What happens with me? I have, I have insurance for my car, my house, my health, and I hate to pay that insurance, but I pay it to get rid of the risk. Ooh, I hate to pay it because I'm paying an insurance company, right? I mean, but look at this. This payment is actually really nice. This payment comes in giving rural kids early childhood development centers. It improves schools and gives better teachers. This is a great payment. You know, you have to, you have to make the sacrifices elsewhere. But so I'm going to leave right there. But, um, uh, you know, I think that uh, the, uh, the really good points, Gene. Thank you. I'll just briefly follow up on two points you mentioned. You seem very um, pessimistic about the HUCO reform coming up very soon. You said it will take a long time to realize. Um, but the HUCO system will not only hinder uh, the education problem, but will also address, uh, affect many aspects of people's lives. I study the social benefit system, um, pensions, healthcare. These are big issues. People don't get same kind of benefits. They don't get same kind of access. Um, why do you think so? Is it the money? Is it political stability? Uh, what is it that would stop China from pursuing this round. There were some talks about making this happen, right? So I would like to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Well, it's very much related to what I just said, right? And it's about, about making, it's about lack of voice, <laughs> right? Um, and then it's about investment. Um, uh, Terry Sicular from the University of Western Ontario. Um, she was at Harvard for many years. Um, she was at Stanford. <laughs> I actually took her place at Stanford, uh, 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 you know, 30 years ago. Uh, Terry has a great paper on called China's Middle Class. Um, if people should go just to you know, Terry Sicular Middle Class China, and the paper will come up. Uh, it's really worth reading. And of course, it's about two things. It's about this expansion of the middle class. And it's, of course, what it is, it's amazing, right? I mean, the middle classes. But what she just keeps talking about is, you know, there's no poverty. <laughs> yeah, there's a super elite. And we need to know more about that invisible super elite, right? But um, 
but uh, if the middle class, who the by far the biggest part of China is the low income. So nobody's poor anymore. By 2020, there's no poverty, but everybody's low, about about 70% of the economy is poor, uh, is low income, right? And what she's got these other, she's got these statistics about middle class versus low income. An urban middle class elderly, <laughs> 65 and above, on average gets 3,500 yuan per month. The average rural elderly, 65 and above, on average gets 55 yuan a month. 3,500, 55, <laughs> okay? Uh, catastrophic health insurance, right? Urban people, you know, you get cancer, you get you get diabetes and all the problem, the heart problems and everything. Everything's covered. Everything's covered in the rural economy. Uh, if if you get a cut, if you get a, a, a sore tooth, um, you know you know it's covered. It's actually uh, and they've made lots of lots of strides with the health insurance in rural areas, but it's locally funded. And so if you want, if you, it, what happens is there's a limit to how much they can pay out every year. So if you have cancer in there it's not covered and you and so rural people have to save and save and save just in case right because they want insurance they insure themselves um so i think the the deep down it's they don't have this voice it would be very expensive to take all those rural elderly from 55 yen to 3500 you know we could take the, the urban elderly and reduce their welfare their social security payments no, uh, those people won't like it. <laughs> you remember what happened when when Putin decreased <laughs> Social Security? Everyone, all the elderly went out on the street and um, that would happen in China too. So they're not gonna do that. It's a matter of, so I think it's, they gotta understand the problem and then move forward. And um, uh, I think getting rid of this hukou, at least in kind, is what they need to do. Thank you. And thank you for mentioning Terry's work. We both belong to the same research team of the China Household Income Project. Yeah. Uh, so she will be happy to learn. I also want to mention my colleague Xian Huang of Rutgers University, a political scientist, just published a wonderful book about health policy and politics in China, in which she reveals using both quantitative and qualitative data, the inequalities in healthcare benefits and access. It's very powerful. It's a great uh, book. I, yeah, I will ask one last question and turn it over to Erica, who will uh, uh, handle the Q&A. So my last question is, you mentioned that the township schools are wonderful in hardware, but not in software. I think you don't only mean the computer softwares or uh, iPads, but the difficulty is to attract good teachers. <laughs> How do you suggest China to address this issue? Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um... Uh, we actually, uh, my group, we've just, uh, Prashant Loyalka, who's a professor half-time in uh, the Graduate School of Education, half-time with us, uh, he's doing a new initiative called uh, EdTech, uh, and, and I don't want to go too far into it, but the, the, the renaissance of this EdTech for Rural Schools pro program is rural teaching, um, and um, uh, in fact, um, the Institute for International Education has a, 
um, they do a pearls test. It's a reading test. And part of that reading test, they have a teacher satisfaction uh, questionnaire. It's been done in 53 countries. We took it and gave it to about 30,000 rural teachers and then compare. And guess what? <laughs> China's number one again. <laughs> they have the most dissatisfied teachers in the world. Uh, these rural teachers and of course they are paid low they live out in the country okay so um what should we do i mean we should take the, well, i've already said you should take the kids to the cities Huko problem how about take really good urban teachers to the countryside no one wants to go uh how about training rural teachers they have such poor levels of training themselves and they're so busy so it's both of these is is training programs we have a couple papers it's actually person loyal we're saying training doesn't improve teaching at all it actually training hurts kids because they get taken out of the school they get a substitute teacher they get trained they come back they don't change anything and you've had two changes of teachers and the kids grades actually go down so ah i think that is there i don't know what to do you know we're experimenting with new methods of sort of ed, new technologies and double teachers, shuang shi jiao shi, so double teacher questions, um, complementary ed tech programs, um, adaptive learning programs. I, I just don't know what's going to miss it. I, it's, it's a problem. <laughs> so. As a mother of two children, I have to add, especially <laughs> in this year's pandemic, the mothers are doing so much and fathers too, but uh, in rural China and in most of China, probably more the mothers who are taking over a lot of the teaching responsibilities. A lot. So, and that's, that's if they can get an internet signal in rural China, and then mom and the kid has to run to the top of the hill and sit there in the rain while they have a mobile phone and, and, and try to study online on their phone. Uh, over half of the kids in rural areas try to go to school with a, uh, with, with a smartphone. I mean, no computer, no iPad, just a smartphone, right? Uh, and what happens if you have two kids <laughs> you, you, and you have one smartphone? <laughs> Thank you so much, Scott. This was great fun. I will now turn it over to Erica, who will convene the Q&A. Thank you both so much. This was a really illuminating conversation. Um, we are going to move on to audience Q&A, um, starting with a question from Matt Chitwood, Matthew Chitwood, who actually did a program with us um, back in July on perspectives from rural China. Oh. And it's, it's a really interesting uh, program if you have a chance to check it out. Um, his question is, uh, China is set to eradicate extreme rural poverty by 2020. Is it making a difference in places you work? I witnessed the campaign for two years in a remote village in Yunnan. Um, people were gaining access to paved roads and building new houses for the first time in their lives, essentially living their best lives now and bolstering support for the party. Parentheses, yes, bags of cash make people happy. <laughs> in your research and observation, how have these poverty eradication efforts played out elsewhere across rural China? And how will they play out over the next five to 10 years? Yeah. Um, yeah, these are these are very, very good questions. It's um, um, uh, I don't it almost affects nothing what we're talking about, um, because basically those programs 
were focused on the real poor. Those people continued to be very poor. And in rural China today, if you're really poor, it's one of three groups. One is disabled, two is elderly without kids, and three is um, uh, minority groups. Now, yeah, minority groups, oh, oh, yeah, we have lots and lots of issues with minority groups, and they need development in the big sense of the word. Um, um, you know, we, our group, I'm going to tell you, everybody, very frankly, we work in Han communities. When we do big experiments, when we do big studies, we work in Han communities because we want to show when, when we take our results to leaders to try to get changes. If you say, hey, you know, kids don't have glasses. And if you put glasses on them, uh, they, their grades go up and they say, where did you do this? Um, it was in, in a Gansu Tibetan community. They go, oh, those those minorities, <laughs> right? Exactly. But if you if you do it in Southern Shanxi, where it's a Han, uh, where it's a Han community, and you say this, then at least it applies to you know ninety three percent of China, right? And so um, so I think minorities, but. But the, handing out bags of cash might make people have, but it's not focusing on this problem. We have a low income problem. We don't have a poverty problem. And we have a, we have a human capital problem. And so it's really g investing in those things that are going to give employment, give social services like Professor Gao wants, and of course, giving people the, the human capital resources that they can participate in this economy. And so um, uh, I think what we, and. I, I think that they're starting a new campaign called Nongchun Gongxing Rural Revitalization. If that would, I, we don't need any more greenhouses. What we need is, you know, better schools. And I think that if the government can shift towards that, it's going to make a big difference. Thank you. Um, we have another question from Nicholas Lardy, who. Oh is at Peterson Institute for International Economics and is my hero in the field <laughs> and is also a nationally a national committee vice chair his question is tell us about problems of nutrition in rural areas even if schools are improving is poor nutrition especially in early years a handicap what is being done well, it's it's we 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 spend a lot of time with this. Um, so our group, our group, when we started doing education, I saw there's so few rural kids. This was back in 2005 that were in high school. So we started doing high school programs. It didn't work. And then we did a whole bunch of junior high programs and they didn't work <laughs> because the kids who were coming to junior high hadn't learned anything in elementary school. So then we went into elementary school and guess what we found is, uh, is um, and these are studies from the last three or four years, uh, Nick and everyone else, uh, till today, uh, about 30% of kids that are in school are still anemic. They have, uh, they have um, iron deficiency anemia, and of course that affects your ability to learn. Another 25% have myopia and they don't have glasses. And another 30% have intestinal worms. 
which then leads to anemia and leads. And if you put if you put the Venn diagram together of the nutrition of the uncorrected myopia and of the intestinal warps, guess what? About sixty percent of rural kids in China today. I, I, I'm not talking about twenty years ago. Today have a learning have a health. Um, a problem, a health problem broadly defined, health and nutrition problem that affects learning. No wonder they don't learn how to learn. And that's part of the software I was talking about, Professor Gao, right? Is is they got beautiful libraries, no librarian, right? They have they, they have little clinics now. There's no nurse, right? There's beautiful uh, dormitories. There's no dorm teacher, right? Um, there's there's computer rooms, no computer computer teachers. So um, and and we we have these problems. So even if you took you took the best kid, you, you took a kid and put him in the Rinda Fushao. You know, the Renmin University uh, Associated Elementary School, the best elementary school in China. If that kid had anemia, he couldn't see the blackboard. Uh, and if he had intestinal worms, he's not going to learn in that school. So it's a big problem. And these are easily solvable problems. Guess what? Everyone's invisible, right? That's the problem. Um, nobody researches it because all research money comes from the local, from the provincial government, and the provincial governments for rural areas don't have any money, so they don't do research. So. Oh, thank you. Um, Tim, do you want to respond to that as well? I was just going to say this is so much a human capital or education problem, but also health access problem. Um, imagine the kids having regular checkups having doctors and the registered nurses in the community, they could easily avoid these issues. Healthcare access and quality in rural China is a big issue. Thanks. Okay. Um, another question and comments from Mary E. Gallagher. Yeah, I know. I saw Mary's question. Hi, Mary. <laughs> Um, on informal labor, I totally agree with Scott, but I think this was done on purpose by leaders worried about rising wages and the strictness of China's labor laws. Even today, those laws aren't enforced well in the service sector. In order to boost short-term growth and employment, the government looks the other way when laws aren't followed. Is this trade-off necessary? I think the government believes that they need to boost employment more than they need to boost formality social insurance coverage, even access to higher education. Yeah, and um, that's that's really, uh, I get this question asked to me from time to time by economists, Mary. <laughs> a, uh, and uh, uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's the tension and sort of what I'm saying. Of course, what we're seeing is, I think we're seeing this, I can't, the start of the polarization, right? We're right here as it's starting. And yeah, that, that, that we're going to get rid of this formality. We're going to dump up, you know, we're going to get rid of the regulations so people can work at a lower wage. They don't need to be paid benefits. And so they'll keep having a job. And that's, that's, yeah, I mean, there is a benefit to that, that, it, you know, everybody, you know, everybody in China has a job, has a job, right? Um, but once Right, automation continues, globalization continues, um, uh, you know, et cetera, and we start dumping more and more people into this economy. Wages start going down and down and down, um, you know, like like they do, you know, in all those other countries we 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 talked about, um, and suddenly 
the wage is so low, people start to say, hmm, you know, should I go into, should I do this job, um, you know, selling, um, uh, uh, you know, selling hot, hot buns on the side of the road, or should I go over to organized crime? Um, and you start to get people dropping out of the, of the informal economy, you know, into the dark economy. And then, you know, you start to, to generate these, that, that hasn't really started yet, but that's where I'm afraid it's going to go. And that's what I'm saying is wake up now. Right. I mean, maybe it's too late, but maybe it's not. And so, um, these are, this is exactly the, the so, and putting, regulation on like like professor gawain you just said um yeah i mean and but you know of course as soon as you raise the wage and raise the benefits then less people are going to be hired and that, that's what china is worried about you need this huge benefit you, you need a big social security and unemployment insurance benefit program over here um we see the problem with unemployment in rural china through covid right i mean 250 million people were unemployed. Guess how many people got unemployment payments? A zero. We, we have a couple papers on this where we, we actually um, surveyed uh, uh, 760 villages, seven, sorry, 735 villages, and nobody in those villages got any unemployment transfer payments, right? So it's... Um, I didn't really... Sorry, add quickly. In this regard, the, uh, China is so similar to the US. We value jobs and growth. We don't value security and protection. Um, so yeah, I mean, China and US have many differences, but also many similarities, especially in the value system, surprisingly. <laughs> I would just uh, say that, thanks. Yeah. And, and I, think, I think just, I think today the difference is is our poor or our uh, in the polarization, the unskilled labor in our in our economy, they've lost faith in the system and they don't see a future out there, right? And you know that's caused a lot of the problems in our society, right? In China, it's happened so recently is, they keep telling themselves, well, I'm better off than I was 10 years ago. I'm better off than I was 20 years ago, right? And, um, you know, um, uh, Nick will, uh, if, you, if you ever read the book <laughs> online, you're going to see I spelled Marty White's name wrong. W-H-Y-T-E, everybody, everybody in this room probably knows who Marty is. And, um, uh, you know, Marty has really described this right. And what Marty keeps saying is this inequality is going to come home to roost as soon as you turn this corner where the poor, you know, the rich got richer, but the poor were getting richer at a much slower rate. Um, when they start seeing that disappear and the future becomes uncertain and, and, and hopeless, then social unrest rises. Okay, That's sorry, the Eric. U.S. today. Yeah, to 100%. And also in your book, you talked about Mexico a lot. And, and during like the early 20, 2000s, um, after their economic downturn spiral, um, how that process went with the social unrest that occurred after that. I thought the comparison was really interesting and how you compared that to the potential of China's future. 
Um, and I, that was going to be my, la my my next question. Also, Joan Kaufman asked a similar question, but I feel like you've um, you've emphasized this question a lot so far. So I'll ask another question from Andrew Younger at Yale China Association. Um, how will the human capital crisis in the rural population intersect with the demographic challenge of China's aging population? <laughs> it it just makes it worse and worse. <laughs> um, no, um, yeah, you know, ultimately, right, if we could, if we could give, you know. 250 million people a universal income for 40 years and then started to start to train all the kids in the whole country with a high quality education you know we're going to get through this and then the the big the the, the the demographic problem is going to make us there's fewer and fewer people and uh that the, the people who are well educated behind them are are going to be able to support the elderly who are poor and uneducated and but um you know this is a 40 you know i often say kids born today there is a there is a uh, about an 85% probability that every kid born today will be alive in 2100 right um and and so um we have to really look at at, at the long run and so that now it, so let me step back and now talk about the demography problem which i'm not an expert I, you know i read a lot uh, we're gonna have a lot of people retiring right and um unfortunately in rural china they're going to retire without much of a retirement um uh so they're going to depend on their kids right to, as that's their main retirement package right they're going to have a little right now they have a little bit of payment from the government and they have savings right um so that the extent that that can support them through their old age that's fine but most people don't have enough they're going to have to depend on their kids or if their kids have falling income and if their kids get knocked out of the form, formal economy the informal economy not drop out of the informal economy uh you could see a lot of problems with this this big elderly especially since there's not very good healthcare out there to first to start with so it's a it's a double whammy, right? In uh, this question, I have to say, this is partly what motiv motivated me to mention the care economy. As the population aging trends continue, there will be a great need for a lot of caregivers. Many need to be young and uh, strong physically, and of course, be able to understand yeah. medical terms and other things. But I think that is a real field that China could build and construct uh, China is now also exploring long-term care insurance, where there will be a market and will need uh, workers. Yep. Um, moving on to Dan Rosen's question. He's at Rhodium, also a National Committee board member. Um, how are Beijing officials reacting to your work? <laughs> um. This book was, uh, I have a contract for this book with People's Press, Rinmin Chubansha, right? This is the, this is, uh, I actually, I actually, if in, in, uh, I actually have a cover. It's 
done. It's been translated. It was translated and proofed by four different editors, and I we had to revise it. It's all ready to go, and then the U.S. trade dispute started. <laughs> uh, Renmin, uh, the People's Press said, we don't want to publish books by an American. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, I was hoping that book would be, so they have the Chinese rights to this book I, and, and it's ready to go. I hope it's published there. When, and, and by the way, it is advocated, that book is advocated by Han Jun and Han Jun is the, uh, the top agricultural official in all of China. So he's above the Minister of Agriculture. Um, he did all the negotiating with the, the, the trade, trade delegation for, um, for agricultural products. So Han Jun is a very, uh, he's actually personally um, um, uh, advocated for this book. So um, uh, I'm very proud. Now, because <laughs> uh, uh, he thinks it's important and he thinks this is an invisible problem. The problem is when I give a talk like this in China and a reporter's in the crowd, what they do is they say, Scott Rosell, Wilson Gao, that's my Chinese name. Uh, they think that there's going to be massive um, uh, rise of organized crime in China in the future, and um, it's going to undermine uh, China's growth, right? And so, you know, they take it completely out of context. They forget to say, you know, that, you know, I'm doing this book as trying to bring these problems to your attention, right? And so we've got in a little trouble <laughs> with with this book. It hasn't been a lot. Um, and um, so, uh, you know, I think that, you know, it's a matter of how it's presented. And, you know, I, like I say, I mean, the Chinese government has come up long ways. They've invested in one, two, three, four, five, six. Look at all these schools that they build in Professor Gao's, uh, you know, community. You know, look at all the, um, you know, teacher salaries are going up. They got everybody in the high school now, right? Um, so they know there's this problem out here. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, presented to them in the right way, uh, they mostly think, you know, they, they, they keep thinking is, you know, uh, you know, what's the cost benefit? What's the cost benefit? Um, with glasses, right, the cost benefit is so high, there's actually a national glasses program that's being implemented slowly. So they're, they're doing stuff, but, um, you know, it's not as much as we need, so. I think we have time for a couple more questions. Okay, I'll try um, to be quick. <laughs> there's one from Leslie Stone at EL China Association. Uh, what are the opportunities for U.S.-China cooperation in support of rural China at this challenging time? Um, uh, the committee <laughs> supporting God, Professor Gao's work, <laughs> right? Continuing to have interactions with universities. I mean, um, I mean, I think bringing, you know, bringing, you know, giving visas to all Chinese students and have them coming here, right? And and continuing our collaborations. These are huge parts of it, right? And uh, um, uh, you know, by the way. 
I think that, you know, in this pause of bringing student, new students over here because of COVID-19 and everything, I think that one thing that we should really do here, and I don't, I don't mind, I don't want to start teaching, you know, um, um, uh, U.S. constitutional um, think tanks, but I think we need to really really try to sit back and think, how can we give Chinese students who come here, all students from all countries, a, you know, a, a better um, program, but integrate them into, integrate them into school society, local society, local communities, uh, national society, and teach them, not teach them, or let them learn, you know, about, this. because, you know, as we know, there's so many students that come here, and then they're isolated. Um, they get all their news off of WeChat and from CCTV1, and they go back, and they actually, you know, have not very pro, they didn't have a very good experience here, except they learned a lot, you know, in their computer science classes. Um, and so I think we need to think about that. And that's something we can do here and now. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, we have a, we have a foreign, <laughs> we, you know, we have a foreign policy decisions, education decisions, and then we have, I think, some creativity we need to tap to try to try to make these better. Um, uh, yeah, I'm sure there's, um, yeah, th there's a lot more to do. I, I think foreign policy wise, you know, um, th this isn't for the average American to do. We have to work with our allies, you know, the, the Europeans, the Japanese, the Australians, the Canadians. We need to get together and get a single package, negotiating package to go work with China. It needs to be fair. It needs to be, uh, it, you know, it can't be too exploitive of China. And we have to say, here's how the world's going to deal with you. You know, a new, a new WTO, you know, uh, package. And so let me just stop right there. Thanks. Jean, um, would you like to say anything about that? Uh, this is a very good question. I'm just uh, reflecting at this moment of history, I think many uh, Chinese educators and students today have more confidence about the Chinese education system than before. Uh, when I first came to this country, we all came to learn and we were so hungry. We looked up uh, to the US value system, education <laughs> system. I'm not sure that today it's 100% uh, true anymore. Uh, it's still true, the U.S. has probably one of the best education systems in the world, but China is gaining in this field, especially higher education too. I think that's worth us to ponder and more communication, more discussion of these down-to-earth issues, human capital, education, healthcare, pensions, aging trend. I think those would be very helpful to everyone involved. But I don't think in the U.S. we can assume we are the leader. We are going to decide the trajectory of the world because not everybody is buying into that anymore. Um, so this is a critical moment for me to reflect and for us all to think about that. Thank you both so much. I, I don't think we have time for... <laughs> Any other questions? And there were so many, so I apologize in advance for, for not getting to all of them. Um, but thank you both so much. And um, for this wonderful program this afternoon, I would also like to thank our audience members for joining us today. 
Uh, please check out our future events, especially our upcoming flagship program, Chinatown Hall, which will be a total of five different programs this year. Um, you can find more information or sign up for any of those programs on our website. And so with that, I hope you all have a lovely rest of your day. And if you have not already voted, tomorrow's the day. <laughs> Vote. So. Yeah. But thank you, Erica. Thank you, thank Professor Gao. And if people have additional questions, they can send them to me. Just uh, uh, roselle at stanford.edu. Okay. Thank you Sounds both good. very much. Same here. Thank uh, you Thank so you much. to the audience members. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.